Hey, it's Brandon Laws, your host of Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for tuning in for today's episode. I have a conversation with Eric Pepper and Richard Harvey. They're the authors of the new book, Tech Stress, How Technology is Hijacking Our Lives, Strategies for Coping and Pragmatic Ergonomics. They tackled the question in this episode and in the book, of course, how do we adjust our lifestyle so we're not connected 24-7 to the virtual world? We have smartphones at our disposal, laptops, tablets, you name it. And it's all good stuff when used properly, but they make the argument that there, there's a lot of bad that comes with it too. So how can we adjust our lifestyle in a way that will adapt to those things perfectly, separate ourselves so that we're not having uh, physical pain in our body, back problems or neck problems or eye problems, um, or even the mental side of things, which is stress, anxiety, those, those sort of things. So we do tackle that in this episode. Their book is humongous and has so much to it. So we only touch a little bit of what's in the book. Uh, so I encourage you to go pick up that book for more of their research and, and what they recommend because there's a lot of good stuff in there. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's um, it's different. We dive into technology and, and what it's doing to all of us and, and how we should use it properly. So I think you're going to get a lot from this and hopefully uh, you enjoy this type of episode. Let me know what you think. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, any of those places and be happy to connect with you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Rick, Eric, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Likewise. Thanks. Well, thank you. It's such a pleasure to share the information. I was telling somebody earlier that with your book, Tech Stress, How Technology is Hijacking Our Lives, Strategies for Coping and Pragmatic Ergonomics, I, I was telling somebody that this might be one of the most important interviews I'll do. I think everybody knows that like technology is just taking over our lives. And a lot of people are just not handling it correctly. And you wrote that, and I believe the research that you did prior, maybe is leading up to 1996, where you started seeing like more computer related disorders coming up as computers started taking over typewriters across the country. Maybe explain for listeners what you started seeing, maybe which led to, you know, eventually writing this book decades later. But what did you start to see as far as like how computers and technology were impacting us from a stress or our bodies and all that. Let me start the first way. The first persons we ever saw were people who obviously shifted to the computer. And then they had ergonomists who adjusted their chair, their table perfectly, and they still had symptoms. And what people didn't realize is that when you work at the computer, you tend to sit statically. You have no idea that your shoulders are slightly up, especially if you're mousing, you have no idea that you're bracing and we could do a little exercise, for example, in a moment to show that phenomenon. And then because our background is in applied psychophysiology, that means we monitor the muscles of the person or their breathing pattern of which they're not aware, we could see their bodies were reacting and the person wasn't aware. And unlike typing, 
you would be automatically interrupted in your movements. You know, you would hit return. And in the computer, you don't have to do it. You have sitting disease. You can sit and be captured. And all of a sudden, we start to realize how much we were captured because the signals were triggering our evolutionary survival patterns. I'm going to tell a very different story, but Brandon, do you have a question before I... No, you go for it. I would love to hear a story. All right. So I was looking for a computer when I was you know, out of college and I was shopping at one of the Apple stores that first started opening in a department store. So department and retail stores, kind of like Best Buy kind of thing, but in department stores like Macy's, this one was called Emporium Capwell. And I knew more about the computers than the salespeople did. One of the Apple representatives was also observing what was going on. And I was telling, teaching other customers about this device and how to use it. And they thought I was the sales manager and I wasn't. <laughs> the long story short is that I was offered a job and in retail sales, selling computers and electronics. Eventually, that led into other things in the computer and electronics field that included a buying and selling kinds of things, sales manager. As I moved up the ranks, there were complaints from staff. I was getting you know, ulcers and heart attacks and divorces. Mm. And I was told by the upper management, go take a workplace wellness class for half a day on a Friday and then go and solve all your employees' problems. Of course, that didn't work. So I quit the rat race, decided to go back to school, and I went for a master's degree. And Eric Pepper was one of my teachers. And Eric was an amazing educator. He taught me that it's not only what you do, but how do you measure what you do? What do you mean is very different than how would you know? How would you know is what are you measuring? So he taught a class in feeding back information about your biological stress. In other words, it's not only that we might stress out, but we want to know how much we're stressing out. And we need instruments to do that. So this biological feedback, biofeedback, is a tool that allows us to measure things. At the time of that master's program, I was studying workplace stress and carpal tunnel syndrome and stress-related you know, injuries and claims, you know, workplace stress kind of things were coming up. So he got me on a project to study not just carpal tunnel syndrome, Little computer mouse was also becoming part of the puzzle. So we did some projects, turned out to be a master's thesis, and that got published. So, which was kind of cool in a journal called Ergonomics about how your muscles work. And then I was encouraged by Eric to go on for a doctoral level of training where I traded the workplace stress for the school place stress and all the students. And I also ran a biofeedback and stress management program at a counseling center. This was at UC at Irvine campus. I also worked at a tobacco research center because people, when they have stress and strain in their lives, run away to alcohol, tobacco, and other drugs. And there was tobacco tax money to support a fellowship. And I also worked as an epidemiologist studying how the tobacco was infiltrating in high schools and adolescents. So adolescent stress and then joined the faculty at San Francisco State. Now I'm back with Eric. So that's a very, very different take on how do we think about this, this stress in the school place, stress in the workplace, stress in our lives. I'm going to stop there because Eric really wants to chime in. I think the first study we did together on the mouse symbolizes 
often what work stress, at least the mechanical side of work stress was. Yeah. This was the transition from keyboards to using a mouse or a trackpad or something like this. And what we observed very quickly is that people had these very well ergonomic designed keyboards. Do you remember the old Microsoft one that looks like a little mountaintop where you could sit? The trouble is that most people are mousing. In order to do that, you have to go past the number pad, go way out to the side, and then you have to do very fine movements. And the moment you do that, you have trouble. In that first study, we showed that the wider the keyboard was, the more muscle tension. And maybe hmm. if the listener wants to do the following exercise, let me guide you through it, and it probably symbolizes what happens when you work at the computer. Just put your hand next to the imaginary or real keyboard, hold a mouse, and in a moment, what I'd like you to do is draw the letters of your street address with the mouse. So, however, make it more difficult. Start with the last letter of the street address. So if it's Derby Street, the last letter would be the letter T. Now I would draw with the mouse the letter T, then I would click, then I go back one back, that would be the letter E, I would click. That is the concept. However, make this letter only a half inch or maybe a quarter inch high. So that's very challenging. So you have to move the mouse very little, and then you go to the next one. Are you ready to do that? Start now. Do it as quickly as possible. Don't make a mistake. Quicker, quicker, do it quicker, quicker. And what you observe at this moment is you probably held your breath, you tightened your shoulders, you stiffened your trunk, and you had no idea that that occurred till we pointed out. That's what the physiology showed. And that then clearly showed that work stress was much more than ergonomics. It is the person's own stress. It is the environmental stress. It's who they bring into that setting and what is demanded. And on top of that is that the newer notifications, the displays are all triggering survival mechanisms, which we react to automatically. And when we do that too often, we are in trouble. We all know that implicitly. We don't know it, we experience it. When I'm on an airplane and the person next to me opens up their laptop, you know, automatically I peek at it. When I'm on, on the subway, I do the same thing at parties. And I thought I had good self-control. I don't. But why does that happen? And that is the, one of the themes we have explored. Because basically for survival value, if you go back to you and being as a hunting gatherer, we need to be constantly aware what is going around us. Is it friend or foe? Is it food or no food? Whatever it is. And so I am wired to react. And the challenge is today that the technology we work with evoke this all the time. And then we stay aroused. And at the end of the day, we are exhausted. We have neck and shoulder pain. We have Zoom fatigue. Our eyes get really irritable. And that is not just the mechanics of sitting. It's the ergonomics, yes but it's all those other factors. And in terms of ergonomics, as a friend of mine said, and colleague, she said, you know, when you get the right adjusted chair, it only gives you the opportunity to sit correctly. It doesn't mean you do. You can still slouch, you can still collapse. But if you get an incorrect chair for you, too high, too low, too deep, whatever, then you have no opportunity to sit correctly. And then you have to really adapt all the time. 
there's a powerful illustration that you guys put in the book. It's an adaptation of The Ascent of Man, which people would recognize. <laughs> and I looked at it. And I'm like, okay, there's the ape, then the human, the hunter-gatherer. And then all of a sudden, the human starts hunching over. And then at the last depiction was them sitting at a computer. Are we as humans hardwired for sitting all day, staring at a computer the way we are? I, Eric, you're shaking your head. No. <laughs> well, both yeah. Rick and I would say, no, we are wired to all day. Think again of a hunting and gatherer. We'd be walking, running, picking fruit, and then we would rest. We would alternate. However, sitting and resting is very useful. Technically, we would conserve energy. So we're also wired once we sit, if there's no need not to get up. And all of us have experienced that when we start, you know, seeing one video series after another. Once it starts, it's very hard to get up. Once I'm involved in work, there's no way by which I know almost to interrupt because I'm so captured. The computer screen captures me. I'm addicted almost to it. And so what I have done to solve it is to realize I can't trust Eric Pepper about interrupting himself. So I use a free program called Stretch Break, and it can be downloaded from stretchbreak.com. There are many others, but this one is free, in which I install as an app on my computer, and every 20 minutes or so, a little stretching figure comes up for me to wiggle and move. Oh, that's great. It is great. Yeah, and let me add on for the kids out there. The little bouncy balls, the yoga balls, or the big ones that you can sit on, allow the kids to move around. I have a topper that's just the top part of the yoga ball, and it allows me to kind of wiggle in my chair, yeah. and that moves around on a regular basis. So we're not meant to be static as much as dynamic in our activity. And I want to add in one more piece, and it's not good, bad, right, or wrong. It's when, where, and who you are. At times, it does make sense. If you're in a concert or a theater, you got to sit still for a couple hours. But if you're at a task and you are also dealing with ambiguity and uncertainty, I don't know how to do this. I don't understand the puzzle. Ambiguity and uncertainty often allows us to tighten or brace because tightening and bracing is adaptive. It helps us identify what else is going on around. Are there any predators? Are they friend or foe? Is there something that's going to be a struggle for me? But we add in, sadly, this thing called time pressure, because we're always having to do things by the clock. So we have ambiguity and uncertainty as a category that raises concern or worry. We have time pressure, whatever time pressure means. And then the last one is emotional upset, anger, sadness, fear, boredom as emotional categories. Take those broad categories together into a soup or a mix, and we're going to get a lot of strain on our system. And a little bit of strain is probably okay, because that's how we learn and how we grow. But too much or too long or in the wrong space or place, meaning if you're locked into a chair, then you might injure yourself. And we know this from, say, animal studies, when we put chickens in a big factory farm and they can't move, they get very stressed out. Stressed out, yeah. And immobility is a big challenge, but hypermobility, too much movement also can work against you. And what is that range is also described in the book of frequency, how often we do something, exercising, stretching, moving, 
Intensity is a different question because when we tighten or brace our muscles too intensely, we're going to start accumulating all those, not just stress hormones, but aches and pains like lactic acid will build up in the muscles and it irritates the nerve endings, meaning discomfort. And this can also be illustrated in a simple way. So for example, if you take any arm right or left and just hold it out and just hold your arm out and we'll count like at some point, roughly Getting pretty heavy. <laughs> well, hold on, hold on. I mean, it takes like, you know, give it a little bit, but you should start feeling something in, I don't know, roughly between 30 seconds, three minutes, because they're kind of two different muscle types that need to be regenerated or refueled between 30 seconds and three minutes time. There's a different set of muscle types where they are long-term. You can stand on your leg muscles for a long time without fatiguing, but these fast twitch muscles, they take a very short. And now you start feeling something by now because it's been over 30 seconds. Even my fingers are tingling right now. Got it. So put down your arm. But my point is, is that you need to replenish. Now, if you're letting that good nutrient fluid called blood, get all those oxygen and other nutrients to the fingertips, that's a good thing. But if we're holding our muscles tight, like for example, our fingers over a keyboard or our finger over a mouse, and we don't move it, then that fatigue sets in. Now, we have an override system from an evolutionary perspective. That is to say, when we have an important thing that we must do for our survival, other chemicals are released that are in some ways pain relieving, analgesic in nature. And we don't want to worry about our muscle aches and pains or our wounds or our injuries in the moment that we need to survive. So those same chemicals get released, but we're not in the old time jungle, we're in the modern jungle now. And all that immobility stress, all those muscles that are aching and twitching and squawking at us, the same chemicals get released from a survival perspective but then we don't know. And by the way, some of those chemicals are very similar to opioids. That is to say, like the ones people get dependent on. And by the way, some of those chemicals are very similar to the alcohol kind of chemicals that kind of deaden and numb us. And some of them are related to cannabis also, believe it or not. So we take those things to kind of ignore or distract ourselves from our aches or pains rather than moving our body rather than paying attention. So we have to pay attention to shift our intention, but go ahead, Eric, I'm sorry. No, that's great. I mean, superbly. You just reminded me about the critical part that people don't realize, and you just gave the mechanism. We stay frozen and we're unaware. It isn't that we're massively tense usually, just this very low level tension. And it's only by the end of the day usually, or after hours we have the achiness, and then it's usually too late. And so for a moment, as you're listening, just wiggle, stand up, see if you can stand up. Well, if you're driving, don't stand up, obviously. <laughs> right. Yeah, but stretch, move. Stretch, wiggle, dance, make yourself look silly. Just take it, you know, really breathe as you do that. And now it's just sit again. Notice your energy has just gone up. Your mood may have gotten better. And also notice how challenging it was to get up. The other part is what we forget when we sit. Historically, we would sit for a little while, then walk, or we would lie down. When we sit, our calf muscles no longer are activated, and the blood starts pooling into our legs. And what is, in order to have good, easy blood return, to have less stress on the cardiovascular system, paradoxically, we need to tighten our calf muscles. They're like a pump to help bring the blood. They are the second heart. 
Yes, absolutely, Rick. They are truly the second heart. We forget that. So when you stand up even, all you do is you just stand on your toes, back and forth, lift your heels a few times. They will pump it. And we notice when we talk in the airplanes, when people are sitting too long, then they get, you know, clots. This is almost happening to people in a metaphor at the computer just as much. So we need to be reminded. How can I be reminded? We gave one example already about the program of like a stretch break app. Another one, which I love, and there are now two versions of this, is a little biofeedback machine you can put right on your spine and it measures the tilt of your body. Okay, it's called Upright Go. And so it runs on your cell phone. And after you've calibrated, when you start slouching, which so many of us do, when we're looking at the text, when we get tired or exhausted, it starts vibrating. And it reminds me, nobody knows, nobody can see it. I feel it. I react and it reminds me to sit up. Another way this is now done by that same company is using your camera on your computer. And it looks at your posture and when it sees you collapsing, it pops on the screen. It turns red. I love these devices. Wow. It's really great. You know, but the movement is critical to do. Rick, you, I'll let it go back to you. Well, it's just the same notion. We have to pay attention to shift our intention. Yes. So, for example, one of my colleagues has high heels on, but then the feet get elevated and the calf muscles get tight. And at the meetings, they take off their shoes and they deliberately stretch those calf muscles, getting the circulation going. Nobody knows about it because it's under the table. And at the same time, it's a deliberate set of actions. I'm going to also say at the meetings, they routinely look at the horizon, look out the windows. It's not only turning your head, it's resting those eye muscles because the eye muscles can also get fatigued in a similar way. So we get sore neck and shoulders, but then you can do slow stretching. This is what yoga classes are about, is that slow, gradual, deliberate, intentional movement to allow circulation. I'm going to add on one more piece, which is your rib cage muscles, the intercostal muscles, have to move in order to allow all of that circulation of fluids all throughout your body. And those fluids carry oxygen. They also carry other ways to replenish your system. I'm going to add in one more piece, but go ahead, Eric. What really happens is when we sit all the time at the computer, we're collapsing. When we are collapsing, we are applying pressure to our abdomen. And all of us have experienced that. When you eat a big meal and your belt is too tight or something like, you loosen, you feel better. Well, unknowingly, we're doing this like that almost all the time sitting. And then we breathe more quickly. And as Rick pointed out, we don't blink. And so... How can we shift? So the key really is, is to remember to sit up more. It's hard to do. That's ergonomics in a way. And that's unbelievably challenging now at home during the COVID epidemic, because most of us are now working on laptops on our kitchen table or desk. And a laptop is a, it's a, it is a, I mean, I can't even say it. It's so difficult to sit properly because I bring my hands to the keyboard. They're too high on the kitchen table. If the keyboard is at the right level on my lap, I have to tilt down and look. There's only two solutions for people at the laptop. Get an external keyboard, therefore you can raise your screen or get an external screen and use the keyboard. It's simple, but that's the cheapest thing people can do today. It's only one piece of the puzzle, but it's critical. And finally, as we look, and I'm gonna re-emphasize what Rick said about the eyes. 
When I look at the screen, my eyes converge. They focus. The lens tightens to contract, to become more bulgy, to get in focus. And I stay that way for hours. No different than the exercise Rick gave earlier of lifting the arm. If I lift the arm for a moment, no problem. When I walk, I swing my arms. That means they lift, they let go, and I can do it for hours. With my eyes, I need to relax my eyes. So for a moment, how do you relax your eyes? Look at the far distance for a moment, which is difficult in the room because you're looking right behind the screen against the wall. Look out at the far distance. The moment you look at the far distance, the eyes relax. The lens flattens. Now to feel the relaxation even more, close your eyes. And now let me first give the experience of how to feel more stress. So now with your eyes closed, consider there's something new going on the screen. You quickly have to look. So gasp at the same time. So as you open your eyes, gasp at the same time. Take a big breath in. Like, oh, what a surprise. Ready? And just do it. And open your eyes wide. And when you do that, then you look at the screen, get closer to the screen and look. You see your eyes stay open. They become drier. You tend to hold your breath and shallow breathe. Now do the opposite. Close your eyes. Breathe. Take the next breath. Let your stomach get bigger. And now as you start exhaling, let your eyes softly open up like you don't care. Very softly as you exhale. And as you Way do better. that, you can almost feel a kind of tearing occurring in the eyes, which re-lubricates the eyes. I feel like the Zoom fatigue is a real thing right now. Like where people are literally stuck behind their computers doing Zoom calls all day. And yeah. to your point, when they're hyper-focused and they don't feel like they can stop looking at the people or themselves. Yeah. Some of these exercises are really helpful, right? Yeah, yeah. Very quick. The quickest way to do it, get up. Even on Zoom, it's possible. Or just, you know, stand on your legs, wiggle around a bit, you know, and then it's our move. Rick, yes. Let me just, I'm sorry, I'm jumping in. But the kids out there have a very, very different, the holistic point of view is the media ecology. What is the content is king. The media is king. It's capturing them in many ways. And they kind of forget to pay attention. What does forgetting to pay attention mean is a different question. But what can we do about it is something similar to what Eric just did. It's getting all of the senses involved. So it, a slightly different practice is paying attention to if you sit wherever you are now, if you lower your gaze, or for some people closing their eyes makes sense, then begin listening to the sounds around you. Now you're not captured by the video, by the media. By listening to the sounds around you, the sound of my voice, the high-pitched Wi-Fi sound in the building, any fan noises, you can start paying attention to the internal audio, internal dialogues as well, your internal voice. You can also shift by paying attention to then your muscles with your eyes closed. That is to say, you can identify, imagine breathing now in a special way. So with your gaze lowered, or your eyes closed as easily as you're sitting there now listening to my voice. Imagine now that you can feel as your rib cage expands the back of your chair, the bottom of your chair. Now go to imagery. Imagine air is coming in through the bottoms of your feet, opening up all those lower lobes of the lungs, a big long breath. 
where long in this case is breathing in for five or six seconds. Long breath in. Five or six seconds out. Long breath out. Now release and relax your shoulders. Release your jaw muscles. Release your mouth muscles, your tongue muscles. Let the tip of the tongue go to the base of the mouth. And then you can start recycling again. If you breathe in and out over 10 seconds, one breath is over 10 seconds long. That means you're breathing in and out over six breaths in a minute. 10 seconds goes into 60 seconds six times. And therefore, you're doing what the meditators do, the Zen masters do, the yogis do. So it turns out that there's some physiological basis for that long breath, super long breathing. And that is, it helps release chemicals in the body that are calming and soothing to the nervous system. It's a fancy word. It's called gamma aminobutyric acid. It's a calming and soothing neurotransmitter. And it helps reset the system. Go ahead, Eric. Rick, we you know what you point at. It is the critical piece. And I'm going to go combine that thoughts, images, and what we see affect our bodies. Our bodies do not discriminate between what we see on the screen and what is real. We react the same way, just like a horror movie. We react because we, yeah. seeing screens, another part we have forgotten is that when we sit, we tend to slouch. I'm going to go to this point because I think it's critical, especially for people at work. Near the end of the day, you're tired. You tend to slouch in your chair. When you slouch, it's much easier to have access to hopeless, helpless, defeated thoughts. We have shown this eloquently in research. It's much easier to feel threat or to do worse on math exams or math studies. If you just do a simple study in the family or if your coworkers have them sit collapsed and then evoke hopeless, helpless memories for 30 seconds and then have them sit up and look up and evoke hopeless, helpless memories, you find in the collapsed position, the slouched position, it's so much easier to have access to that. And it's much harder in the collapsed position to have access to positive, inspiring thoughts. You know, in the world, we look up to get inspired. Those phrases have actual physiological and psychological meaning. So the easy way to do it is when I feel stressed now, what I do is I recognize the stress sometimes, not always, but I feel irritable. The moment I get irritable, I stop before speaking. I take a breath. I sit up, breathe lower and look up and only then start thinking and speaking. And when I do that, I'm calmer, I'm quieter, and I tend to have easier access to positive thoughts. If I stay collapsed and defensive, it is just like the dogs. You know, you have an empowered alpha male or alpha female dog and the essentially submissive. When we collapse, our bodies is telling our brain, you are submissive in a way and powerless. And it changes our ability to think from being able to do very abstract thinking to almost just simple survival thinking. So change your posture, sit up, arch your lower back a bit, let the shoulders drop, look a bit up. And if you have any doubt, when you do that, you'll get more energy and you feel slightly, slightly 
less depressed or hopeless. And those are minor pieces, but we are a system. Let's shift over to discussing the evolution of the smartphone. So this piece of technology has, quite frankly, exploded over the last 10 years. Great technology. We have access to virtually everything imaginable, including being able to almost virtually work from our smartphone. What have you noticed about in the time that you've probably studied the smartphone and the use of it and how people are either changing their behavior, they're possibly more stressed out as a result of it. What are you noticing what it's doing to our brain and our bodies by using the smartphone all the time? Let me do one piece and let Rick continue. One is interesting with students is that when we pay attention, we quickly keep interrupting our attention by checking the notifications on our cell phone. And after a while, we will check the cell phone even if there's not any notification. We do this 80, 100 times a day. And that really interrupts our ability to stay to deep, I would say, deep, continuous thinking. I use the scuba diving analogy, or we use the scuba diving analogy in the book. The idea is when you start doing work or we pay attention, we dive into it. We slowly make the connection. We work, do the work at the bottom of the water for a long time. And eventually when the air is done, we come back up and the task is done. Now we do the inverse. What happens? We start diving. The moment we're at the bottom to do work, we have a notification. We pop up. But just like in scuba diving, there's time to do decompression. It takes time to decompress. It takes time to compress. And so what we are doing is we're doing twice as much, half as well. I think that's one. (laughs) And the second one on that is our social but it's really interesting socially. When I ask my students, which I've done, we've done this with hundreds of students, ask them, how do you feel when you're together with somebody in a party or you're observing and the person looks back, pulls out their cell phone for a moment to check it? They almost uniformly say they feel a bit dismissed, not cared for, it broke the social bond. They all say that and almost all do it. So that leads to really, I think, really recognizable rules, I think, which I highly recommend or guidelines, much better word. When you want to be social with a person, put the cell phone to the side, put it out of reach so there's no notification possibility. I'm not saying don't use a cell phone. It's great to order meals. It's great to get information. All that, they're great. And the other final piece is, what is the last thing we do before we go to bed? We check the cell phone and the first thing in the morning. That leads to the whole part of blue light emission into the eyes, which affects sleep. As I look at my cell phone, I get a kind of blue light that suppresses melatonin. And I sort of get emotionally excited or frustrated or angry or whatever on the content has major effects upon sleep. Rick, please add. So I'm going to put out some jargon. And the jargon is D-O-S-E, dose. And it's an acronym for a dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphin. And that is possibly not my work, but many others have commented that the smartphone in our lives helps increase the release of these very, very important, happy, good feeling chemicals. So dopamine is one of the chemicals that's released when we see something that's novel, that's interesting, that's a surprise, that 
gives us instant gratification. That's what dopamine is. And probably the largest bit of research that's been done is why the smartphones are so, I'm going to use the word dependency forming versus addictive, is that this dopamine is released when we see these flashing lights and blinking images. And that's like, wow, that's a surprise. That's, I can't avoid it because our survival depends on that ability to discriminate various kinds of things. If you think of the brain as a comparison machine, light and dark, hot and cold and new or not new, that's what dopamine does for us. It helps us survive. Oxytocin is a slightly different molecule. It's the hugging drug. It's the one that makes us feel safe and connected and loved, so to speak, the love drug of a kind. And when we see images of people that we're familiar with or that we know or that we want to know, then oxytocin kicks in, among other things. Serotonin is a slightly different mechanism. Arguably, it's about pride and status and loyalty. We're depressed when we don't feel proud of our own accomplishments. And then endorphin is a very, very longer conversation. Depending on how much time we have, it's a very interesting drug. Now, why do the smartphones capture us? Is they build on natural chemical releases in the same way that many things capture us. In fact, drugs of abuse capture us because they build on the chemicals that the body releases by itself. Instead of releasing very small amounts in an appropriate way inside our body, the external drugs, so to speak, are an overdose. They're more than we need. And that's why people talk about this dependency or addiction with the smartphones. So a matter of when, where, and who. What time of day does matter? Where you are, the contextual frame matters, and who you are, because we are dynamic individuals. At certain times of the day, I might be tired and hungry while I get hangry. That's a different person than when I'm well-fed and well-rested. And when, where, and who are the big ways to figure out. Like, for example, with our kids, we limit certain times to certain spaces or places and certain who they are. That's how we can regulate the smartphone access. I'm going to stop there. I would add to that part that basically the smartphone is designed perfectly to evoke these evolutionary survival patterns. We call those evolutionary traps. And what is a trap? Let me give a kind of totally different analogy. And that is about the albatrosses, the birds at Midway Island. When you go there, you look at the beach, you see all these thousands of skeletons of these birds. And all you see is the feathers, the skeletons, and their piece of plastic that used to be in their GI tract. What happens with these birds is that over millions of years or whatever, they were flying over the ocean. The ones who could discriminate the shimmering object that was a fish, they would then dive down and eat it. Great. And they would bring it back to their little chiclet or whatever they're called. Then all of a sudden we dump plastic in the ocean. Now the same birds fly, they see something shimmering. It's coated with algae. They dive and eat it. They try to digest it or regurgitate it to their chicks. And now they're all dying. The question is, who's responsible at this point? Is the albatross so stupid that it can't discriminate? Or is it that all of a sudden we change the environment too much? The cell phone and many of the stimuli of the computers have a similar mechanism we automatically will react to the changing stimuli and all the notifications designed by the engineers is really to capture our eyeballs. And then we ask the person 
to have voluntary control, which is at times almost impossible. And then you build upon all the mechanisms Rick had just explained, which I would call addiction almost, <laughs> because I know when the students well, lose their cell phone, it I feel totally lost. Right. They are and addiction. And I thought when anybody loses their cell phone, they feel lost. It's like, my God. I thought it was the visualization and what feeds them or nourishes them. So for example, with all of the sugars, we look at a packaged candy bar and I say, oh, that's going to taste really good. Let me go ahead and eat it, but I'm not getting all the nutrients that I want. When you look at the commercial food system where the factory farms take out all the natural nutrients in the soil, replace them with a minimum amount just to create Mm. this beautiful looking food, but we don't get all this rich variation of naturally abundant soil going into the foods and therefore we become deficient because we're eating those good looking foods, but not good for our body foods. And the same thing is the cell phone images, the media content looks good, but it might not nourish us using that food metaphor. And what is nourishing to us also includes physical activity. So nature deficit disorder, the arts, the aesthetic, the beauty qualities. When we think about the link between all of the mechanisms abstractly or arbitrarily, whether it's nature therapy, pet therapy, art therapy, whether it's yoga, tai chi, qigong, whether it's meditation, prayer, imagery, visualization, look at all of those approaches that people use to deal with or address their stressful lives. There's one piece that always links them together, arguably, and that's how it is that we breathe. When we're in nature, we shift our breathing. When we're doing art therapy and pet therapy and yoga and meditation, we change our breathing. And going back to that fancy word GABA, that gamma aminobutyric acid is the soothing, smoothing, calming chemical in addition to dose, D-O-S-E. It's GABA dose is a different way to think about these important balances, but things that speed us up versus that calm us down, that slow us down. And that's that delicate balance and a holistic point of view is reflected in the book. It's like, it's not only that we can speed up, but it's also that we have this influence, the ability to control our own experience. And it starts with breathing is the argument that I'm making. Whether you're exercising and running, you got to breathe faster, but that's allowing the circulation. When you're eating, you're also changing your breathing. And when you're doing work, you're changing your breathing. If you hold your breath, you can't do anything. You can't sleep well at night. And yeah, exactly. So sleeping is the place that I always start with. And breathing is the place that I always start with. Get your sleeping in order and your breathing in order, whatever that means. And it's a long conversation about how to do those things. But but sleep is also, yeah. I want to add a little more piece on the cell phone and the part which I said earlier, that what we imagine, what we see in the screen really is seen as real. I want to underline. And there's some gorgeous research studies on that. So when we send a person a picture on Instagram of a great meal, and now I see that person's picture, it triggers the hunger in me and will increase my desire to eat more. So in a way, every time we make this great picture, I'm having this great social event, then I also feel more lonely because I don't have those great things. But then I see this great new food, this pasta or this remarkable salad or whatever it is. It for my brain, I see the food. Even though intellectually I know it's a picture, my brain sees it and it reacts as if there is food there. And it tells my body, because from an evolutionary perspective, we needed 
calories to survive. I better start eating. And so in a way, covertly, all those pictures, that visual stimulation activates these patterns which previously allowed us to survive and no longer. And it's a system. We forget that when we look at tech stress, we think, oh, it's only the keyboard. It's only our eyes. It's a, no, it's an interwoven system altogether, an integrated system. And it needs to be individually adapted because just like ergonomics, it's just for each person is different. And yet there are also very large common themes for people to do. And if there's one message, I would say the first one is do set some time schedules where you're away from the digital devices. Go back in nature. You know, in a Japanese term, there's forest bathing. When you're in nature, my gosh, there are all these chemicals there which act as antibacterials, as antiviral agents. It will improve your immune system. Sitting does not improve your immune system. Slower breathing may improve your immune system if you breathe through your nose in and out slightly. But it's a larger system. And I think that's really our message. It isn't simple. Just get another chair. Just do this. Understand both the physiology, the evolutionary patterns that are trapped or triggered by this, and then make great use for it. Just like our interview, it's great to have this technology. How do we adjust our lifestyles in a way that we're not connected 24-7 to the virtual world? Because if most of us are behind our desk working, yeah. I've got my smartphone right here. I've got, you know, like being like, we're just always connected. Like, how do we reduce that? Gradually, safely, whatever gradual and safe means. Let me be silly for a moment. In order to make any shift, any adjustment, any change, very slow, small incremental steps is, I talk to my kids about physical activity. So if you hold both arms out and you put a two pound potato sack, one on each arm, and then you gradually go up to a five pound potato sack, and then you go up to 10 pound potato sacks before you start putting potatoes into the sacks. And you got to gradually incrementally add effort. So you put your phone away for one second, then one minute, then one hour away from your body, and then eventually a half a day and a whole day. And it's a gradual progressive set of, I'm paying attention, I'm deliberately doing this. Let me give a few idea suggestions. Historically, in our earlier times, there used to be blue laws in Massachusetts. Those were days when every Sunday, although it was religiously organized, you could not go shopping. It forced people, they had no choice, but to be social or to not work. Then slowly we start to have our 24-7 days. Our supermarket stayed open 24 hours a day. And all of a sudden, there's no more rest periods built in. I would highly recommend for families especially, or anyone, to schedule a common time, a ritualistic time to spend time together and now we may have to do this time called Zoom dinners together, paradoxically, but still <laughs> where you don't have any cell phones going, but you are just spending a structured time that I think is one. Two, we forget now, especially in the COVID era where we are all residing a schedule and many of us stay at home, we use the same media for work, for education, for socializing, for dating. There's no more separation. Take the lessons from athletics and theater. What you do 
is you need to ritualize your life. That means when you go to work, still go to work, whether it's eight o'clock or 10 o'clock, unimportant, but set a schedule and then make this space a workspace. And that means even if it's in the kitchen where I'm working or on the side of a small room, what I do is I wear a different shirt, just like I'm wearing today. I did wear my work shirt today because of this interview. And then where my laptop is or my computer, which I also use for socializing, I put a different picture behind it. So that's my work space. Then when my work is over, I take that picture off and now I can do my socialization. I change my shirt off. It sounds stupid. It's remarkable. Two, get social support with other colleagues to take momentary breaks. Ritualize it. If you're at Zoom meetings, have people every 20 minutes guide themselves through some movement exercise. I gave the example already of the stretch break. It's unimportant what you do. And then just ask the simple question. How do you feel afterwards in 30 seconds of movement? You feel more aroused, more happy, more social and make it fun. We could be dancing on the screen. You and I, we could mirror each other. I know at a work site that may not be socially acceptable, but I think it yeah, is. Let's do it anyways. We do it anyway. Yeah. And then before sleep, turn off digital devices. And I know it's unbelievably challenging to not want to watch some series, Netflix or whatever, you know, 40 minutes before going to sleep, turn off all the screens and then, you know, have some communication that really does help sleep. And as Rick has pointed out, really encourage physical activity. It's much better to do three 15 minute physical activities than one 45 minute one. So during the day, plan it, schedule it just like a Zoom appointment. You know, hereafter, when I leave after this session, I'm scheduled for 50. Well, I'm going to take a half an hour. Don't tell anybody. And I'll go for a walk. And then I come back and I've looked upside, you know, at the tops of the trees and I feel better. See, are there people with whom you can do that? Yes, Rick. Right. And the same thing. If you schedule, I don't know, a half an hour lunch break to 20 minutes of eating and 10 minutes of walking, 10 minutes, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, all of a sudden you have 30 minutes a day of walking. You start off gradually and slowly, and eventually you build up to something a little bit more. And this is going back to the choosing when you do things matters a lot because by walking after the meal, you send a signal to the body and to the brain that says you want to utilize all those calories, all that energy, all that sugar, for example, for movement like walking. As opposed to the other signal is, no, I need to store it for later use. Let me store that sugar as fat. And if you sit right after eating, you're sending a different signal to the body to store all that calorie for later use. So when you choose to exercise does matter. And where you move your body, as Eric was pointing out, literally changing the physical space around, if nothing more than a fake or a acting job of putting on a new pair of clothes or changing the scenery or picture, that also helps. A couple decades ago, Wayne Mueller wrote a book called Sabbath, which is about the resting and renewal and how do we get back our personal time from our busy lives. And we can carry that with us in our head or in our heart, as well as in our physical space by choosing when, where, and who we interact with various kinds of things. 
Rick, you just reminded me that many years ago when I was still living in New York City, I had a much older friend or colleague I knew who was much older who worked at the White House for John F. Kennedy. And he was not really religious very much, but because he worked at the White House, he literally had no more life. And then he became an Orthodox Jew. And what that meant was he had to have Sabbath. So in the evening of Friday till the sunset on Saturday, he was not available. And he would say, taking that break, because that's the only allowable thing that was possible for him. He could never say, no, I need time out. But this gave him the excuse or the reason. And he would say it saved his life, his marriage, and his family. And I think we all need to create some form of ritualistic time to attend to each other, which is slowly getting lost in our 21st 7, 365 days a year. We can be sitting with the digital devices. And the key to be restored is to take some time out to have deep intimacy and closeness and quietness, especially for the brain. Quietness, not to be bombarded all the time. So new different perspectives can occur. Eric, Rick, this has been an incredible discussion. This book, and we touched like the tip of the iceberg. You guys offer so much good stuff in here. By the time this episode releases, the text stress will be out. So I encourage listeners to go get a copy. Where else do you guys want to point people to as they're maybe starting this journey of trying to get their text stress in order, for lack of a better term? Well, the simple start gradually and slowly. Go ahead, Eric. I think what we do with little kids is you give yourself stars. Adults are not that different. I would just start scheduling. And the most important part, there are hundreds which are important. If you ask what is the simplest thing you can do, is just for a moment put an alarm up, get up and wiggle and move. That by itself will reduce it. And, you know, I learned this when we did a training group at San Francisco State for staff. And we had a man who was working. He had no symptoms. And he was really sort of, you know, well, this is almost wasting time, right? We taught him physiological control and all this stuff. He really thought, you know, I have no problems. I have no headaches, no tension, nothing. Anyway, we persuaded him to do breaks about every half an hour. The following week, he came back and he said, you know, there's life after five. And what he meant was, by the end of the day now, he was no longer exhausted the same way. His energy was higher. And I think that's how we all want to live. We want to have meaning and purpose. Yeah. I was going to add, give yourself permission to have fun. Give yourself permission to be silly. Give yourself permission to make mistakes. If the worst case is embarrassment or inconvenience, <laughs> I did that wrong. I got to go do it. But if you go to right and wrong and good and bad, that self-judgment is going to stop you in your tracks and you'll never be able to enjoy learning and growing from new experiences. And that's kind of, you know, give yourself permission. When you give yourself permission, you know, we make mistakes. What you realize when we make a mistake, whatever we do, at that moment, that was the only thing you could have done because you didn't have the skills yet. You know, however, once you have made that mistake and you look back, then you say, okay, it happened. What wisdom do I have now? How can I do it differently? And these are the kind of practices by which we can both plan a better future and to react differently. And that's all part of what we describe in the book, Tech Stress. 
Guys, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.